Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay current on the latest business, political, and cultural news out of China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website SupChina.com. My homie Tiyumi is now at the editorial helm, and if you are a listener to our show, we are certain that you are going to find it very useful. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Princeton University. Jeremy Goldcorn is in Nashville, Tennessee. Say howdy there, Jeremy. <laughs> I think that's the wrong part of the country. But howdy. <laughs> well, y'all say howdy, don't you? You know, you I, never I say howdy. We, I think the tourists yeah, say howdy. I mean, you say y'all, but <laughs> yeah. All right, say howdy, y'all. Howdy, y'all. Uh, the exit interview has become a fairly regular feature of the Cynical Podcast. We have talked to. Numerous people with long and fascinating careers in journalism, mainly about their reflections as they leave China. Well, today we are going to do yet another in the series. Ed Wong has been with the New York Times in China since 2008 and has a storied career uh, prior to that. In recent years, he has served as bureau chief for the Grey Lady in Beijing. Uh, he has been on our show a good half dozen times. And now that he's here in Princeton, where he's going to begin teaching journalism, we are delighted to be talking to him about the vicissitudes of his years in China, his take on foreign correspondence, and much, much more. Ed Wong, welcome back to Seneca Man. Thanks for welcoming me, Kaiser and Jeremy. Hey, so first off, why don't you tell us what you're doing now, now that you're back in the U.S.? Well, I'm, uh, my family's moved here. We moved here over the summer, and uh, I'm sort of winding down my China tour right now. I'm still going back and forth to Beijing. And for at least the beginning of next year, I'll be teaching uh, international reporting here at Princeton to undergrads. That's for the spring semester. You'll be teaching specifically international reporting. That's right. Oh, interesting. So, Ed, uh, what what will you be teaching them? What kind of guidance will you give your students about foreign correspondence? You know, is it a different mission from domestic reporting that requires a different approach? Well, since it's uh, international reporting, I'll teach them how to interview taxi drivers and what kind of wisdom <laughs> you can glean from that. Uh, no, but seriously, I think it is different than domestic reporting because you can be dropped in a environment and a culture in, in a setting whose language is completely different than what you've grown up with than what you're used to. Some people have never had exposure to the countries that they're assigned to cover. Sometimes your editor calls you up and tells you to fly off to the Philippines when a typhoon hits and you've never been there before. So I think it's vastly different in domestic reporting. I have to say that when you say that, it, it makes me think that there are quite a lot of reporters on the Northeast and in California in the United States who could perhaps do with spending a bit more time in the South or other parts of the country, because I think they might find quite a similar experience. Right. Well, I think that's one of the conversations that a lot of newsrooms are having now following the um, the elections and sort of whether there's a lot of uh, second guessing about their coverage of sort of the American electorate. 
We have a no self-flagellation rule going, at least until the uh, midterm elections. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll stick to that then. All right. Very good. Very good. On the topic of foreign correspondence, though, Ed, one of the, the things that's come up again and again, in as you've heard a lot of journalists reflect on, what is different about foreign correspondence? I think this this idea, uh, maybe I've, I, I heard it for the first time uh, expressed maybe very articulately by Pete Hessler. And he's talked about how when you read a story in the New York Times, and it may be a very negative story about some some hor- horrific malfeasance, uh, you're you're reading it. You know, it's one of 500 stories that day in the paper, and you're presumably somebody who lives in the United States, and you have a bit of context. You can sort of put that in the context that you're not going to assume the country is in flames because you've read about you know this this one incident. Whereas the three or four stories that touch on China in that same newspaper in that day aren't going to be you know, quotidian stories about, uh, you know, they're not going to be dog bites man, right? They're not going to be about those bridges that don't collapse. Uh, and so his point was, and I think I would agree that maybe the mission has to be a little bit different. I mean, you maybe ha- are, are obliged as a foreign correspondent to provide more of the context that you wouldn't get, that you can't assume of the reader in a domestic newspaper. What do you think of that? Uh, I think that's a valid question. I think it would have been a more valid question, actually, say, five years ago. I think with the internet, there is actually a vast amount of information you can find about China. And I... Fair point. And I think that even if, like, we're talking a lot, I think a lot of what we'll talk about on this particular show will be in the context of sort of what we've seen about the media in light of the elections. And I think that that actually showed that people get their news from vastly different sources and that what would, like, five or 10 years ago, something like the New York Times that would have been viewed as like the central, you know, source of news, a central pillar of information about all kinds of things. Even in the U.S. now, you see it's not, and sort of the news that it's supposed to deliver at a premium above all others, political news, it's not seen as the final arbiter of that. And I think that's true also of something as big as China. I think that people read, for example, Pete Hessler's books, people read The New Yorker, people will read uh, Sub-China People will read or listen to NPR. Like there's tons of different things. And there's lots of blogs. Like I remember before I started going to China, I was reading Donway. Donway had just started, I think, in Jeremy, like around 2007. And I remember reading that as a big source of information on China. So I just feel like the (laughs) internet has had this flattening effect. I understand the question you're asking. I think in today's day and age, though, it's a less valid question. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Jeremy, you in your day to day now, um, you, you are aggregating news. Are you finding that there's a huge range of diverse news sources for English language readers? Or are you finding that you're still going to Reuters and Bloomberg and the AP, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the FT and the Economist? Yes, there is a huge range of sources of information for sure. And some of the smaller ones or niche ones can be very good. Um, But if you want a very reliable feed of information of what's going on in China that is well written every day of the week, you still pretty much have to turn to the big players, the wire services, the better newspapers like the New York Times. The thing is that you can supplement it with a lot of additional information from uh, small websites, from blogs, from you know WeChat accounts, you name it. That's great. Ed, you were at the New York Times Bureau in Beijing during some of the moments of highest tension with Chinese authorities when visa renewals were weaponized, basically, uh, when you faced quite a bit of hostility, really beginning with the report by David Barboza on then-Premier Wen Jiabao's family wealth. So reflecting back on on this time, are there things that you think the Times maybe should have done differently, been more aggressive about, been less aggressive about, 
do or do you, you you feel pretty good about what you guys how you guys approach this? Well, I wasn't um, editing those stories, so I don't know what the various options would have been in terms right. of what was in the stories or what wasn't in the stories. But I think that the way that the stories were framed were pretty. I think those stories stand up and they're fairly strong. I'm not sure what we could have done differently in terms of if you're talking about sort of blunting the consequences and the punitive actions that the Chinese government took. I think that during that year, 2012, it was a um, year for a type of political point that we had never seen before in China. I yeah, think it absolutely. started with the Wasilai scandal. The Wall Street Journal did some very good reporting, aggressive reporting on that, and then went onward to Bloomberg's story about Xi Jinping's family wealth, and then culminated with uh, David's stories on Wen Jiebao's family wealth. So I think that all that together, the cumulative effect of that was a shock to the propaganda apparatus, as well as like the leadership in the party. I think they took the most extreme measures or what felt like fairly extreme measures. And yet, if we were to believe the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, things haven't lightened up at all. I mean, that it's it's continued to be very, very repressive, that harassment and surveillance of reporters continues. Is your sense that, that there's a light at the end of this tunnel? Uh, not that I can tell right now. I, I think the um, attitude, the treatment of foreign news bureaus, and that's not just foreign reporters. We're talking a lot about the Chinese uh, co-workers that work with us. A lot of them are on the front lines of dealing with these threats or Absolutely. warnings or um, whatever you want to call them. But given sort of the way that the government of Xi Jinping has approached a wide range of issues, whether it's news organizations, NGOs, um, civil society in China, I don't I don't see the pressure on foreign journalists and their Chinese co-workers lighting up anytime soon. Do you see the coverage changing because of the pressure? I haven't seen the coverage changing. Um, I guess the, I mean, one of the cases- Except Bloomberg. We could talk about is Bloomberg. And- and that's partly due, I think, partly due to, to the pressure. We have some examples. But also, within Bloomberg internally, there was already a big rethinking of the mission of Bloomberg and also dismantling of its investigative team that was headed by Amanda Bennett at the time. And I think that that sort of overlaps with their need to get back into the China market and to the good graces of the Chinese government. Um, but aside from that, I mean, generally speaking, do you, do you notice any kind of more accommodative attitude by... Uh, foreign journalists, uh, you know, or more sympathetic to the Chinese government or less willing to speak their mind? Uh, or do you think that, you know, there's just this isolated case of Bloomberg? Is there a, a slow chilling effect is, I guess, what I'm asking? I think if you're talking about from personal experience, I haven't seen a, seen any or spoken um, directly journalist advocates um, that have felt like there's been this overbearing new pressure put on them within their news organizations. Um, you're talking about self-censorship. I think that that's a very hard thing to get a handle on because a lot of those conversations take place behind closed doors. They might not even be taking place in Beijing. It could be editors back in uh, headquarters having these conversations to sort of guiding journalists in a certain direction. So it's hard to pinpoint. I haven't heard recently of any specific cases. I think there is distinction we should draw between, for example, the large news organizations and sort of smaller um, organizations or journalists who are freelancers. Because I think in the latter group, they have less leeway to push back if there is pressure, if sort of a Chinese official calls them in to have a chat with them, if they're 
they're working under different kinds of visa rules, things like that, then they might feel more vulnerable in ways that someone from, say, the New York Times or Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal might not. And I think that that's where you might see differences in coverage. Okay. Now, another question then about changes in journalists and uh, journalism, uh, foreign correspondents in China. Many have noted a sort of changing of the guard among American journalists in China. Perhaps one should say journalists, journalists of the Anglosphere. Do you think this is a m- misperception and that the turnover hasn't actually been more abrupt than usual? I think I felt like there's been two waves of turnovers since I've been there. I came in 2008 and it felt like that there were a lot of people who were coming in at that time. Um, which makes sense since the Olympics were happening. I feel like journalists had been there for the early mid 2000s were ready to leave and hand it over to people who were coming in to start this new, like covering this new phase of China. And and then, you know, after five, or, the natural sort of time span for a lot of people was five to six years. And then we saw, I think a two two to three years ago, I saw a lot of people leaving. And then now we're seeing another wave on top. Like this year, I feel not just among journalists, but a lot of foreigners have told me that within their companies, a lot of people are leaving, even anecdotal evidence, like the moving company that I used to ship things out. They were saying they've seen more business this year than any other year. And it's people leaving, not people coming. So, so I think that there's also an accumulation of fatigue from uh, a lot from the living environment, uh, living with the intense pollution in Beijing, the growing traffic, things like this. I think it's made a lot of foreigners fairly weary of living long term there. At the same time, there was a lot of there's a new crop of young journalists who many of whom I find very, very impressive people at your bureau, like Amy Chin, for example. Uh, but, you know, quite a quite a number of journalists who are still in their 20s and maybe in their early 30s. Do you see a difference between this younger set and the people in your generation? I think the more of the people in I see coming in from the younger crowd, they might have spent uh, some longer period of their youth in China, like they might have studied there at an earlier age. I think people in that generation have tended to sort of pick up sort of Chinese studies, for example, ear- a bit earlier, maybe even sort of high school years sometimes in some examples then later on and they um, maybe they might travel back and forth more between the US and China before going there do you see that impacting their reporting at all I mean presumably with that more greater facility with the language and maybe you know their their experiences with China I mean we were all well into our early adulthood when uh, Tiananmen happened and and ma- many people who were you know in their 40s and their 50s for, for, it was a really deeply formative event for them and many of us connect almost everything to that somehow. Speak uh, for yourself. Sure, yeah, no, no. actually, <laughs> I don't, it's not funny because I remember. Yeah, I, the I really t- think that's a that's a phenomenon. I, but I, I remember the Tiananmen very clearly from my youth. But actually, like I r- rarely think about that. Like, and it's only you know when it's like the 25th anniversary, then there's sort of this uh, request for coverage. But it's something that I almost never think about in China. Okay. Ed, uh, a lot of pundits looking at the Trump victory in the U.S. are saying that journalism is broken. It needs to change. I suppose this is related to a question I put to you a little earlier. How would you characterize foreign correspondence, especially of and about China, when it comes to doing what journalism is supposed to do? And do you think it's going to change given the very unpredictable nature of geopolitics in the age of a resurgent Russia, risen and rising China, Brexit and uh, Trump in the White House? Uh, I think that partly that depends on how you define the mission of journalism. I mean, it goes back to Kaiser's first question about whether sort of what the aim of journalism is and foreign correspondence. Now, if you sort of take, for example, 
questioning authority or speaking truth to power, which a lot of journalists see as a central tenet of journalism, then that's something that takes place a lot in journalism about China. And there's uh, like what the stories you talked about earlier about the family wealth, for example, like that's a good example of that type of journalism. So if you see journalism or foreign correspondence as about the daily lives or like portraits of daily lives of people, then I think there's less of that type of journalism being done in China. So I think people see it. I don't think all journalists see it as um, in one way. Like I think people uh, define it in different ways. Um, I think that the systematic um, weaknesses of journalism that we've seen the U.S. Um, aren't quite present in foreign correspondence right now because in the U.S. we're talking about sort of people being politicized by silos of information. I think that's the main weakness that has been exposed by this election and sort of like the post-truth type of era. Um, Right now in China, we're not grappling yet with those issues, but there could be a day soon when we'll be confronted with that. In some ways, I think the way that the journalists are sort of bracing for how to cover the Trump government could echo the way that journalists are try- have to try and cover the Chinese government in China in that you're dealing with this very sophisticated, sometimes sophisticated, sometimes um, well, yeah, unsophisticated propaganda apparatus. Sure. And it really depends on how that's very tricky to navigate. I think all journalists in China find that a challenge to navigate, both Chinese and foreign journalists. And I think people... Uh, journalists here in the U.S. find that increasingly problematic as they um, cover the Trump administration. Speaking of the Trump administration, let's let's not get so meta for a second here and, and just talk directly about your take on Trump and China policy. This is one of the big unknowns right now. It could really swing toward confrontation or toward total accommodation. I mean, it's really impossible to say. It depends very much on who has his ear. Is it going to be Peter Navarro and, and Michael Pillsbury? Is it going to be somebody else that we don't know? Is it going to be old crusty neocons from Bush 43? Do you have any hunches, Ed? I think if anyone says they have a strong feeling about what will happen, they're, uh, they're lying to you because, or their feelings are really based totally on a gut check because Trump has just been full of platitudes the entire time and it's hard to tell what direction he's going to go in. Um, I do think that he'll find it difficult to start an intense trade war with China. I think there will be a lot of interest lobbying against that, including large business interests, people that he probably comes into contact with in New York, for example, and that he'll have a lot of advisors telling him not to go ahead with that. In terms of... Maybe the people who actually manufacture all his junky products will be the ones complaining. Exactly. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, of this uh, what, what the Chinese people are saying that in Iwu, e- e- you know that city that manufactures yeah. everything, they mm-hmm. knew who was going to win the election months ago. They say because you know they they were making so many more Trump banners and signs and yard. Right, yards. that's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. So going back, like we, you mentioned Michael Pillsbury, for example. Sure. So, so I've seen you know him. Maybe we should quickly ID him. Uh, Michael Pillsbury is a former sort of Pentagon employee, and he still does consulting. Uh, at least last time I spoke to him, he was still going into the Pentagon and doing consulting for them. But he worked during the Reagan administration, He's and he studied the Chinese military. He's written a book. He wrote His last book was about the Chinese military and sort of China's like vision of— It's called um, The Hundred-Year Marathon, right. and it posits this this 
You well, can go I mean, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> summarize it. Guys. I mean, no, maybe I, I, I am not going to be too generous to the man. I mean, he, he. I've, under, I've, I've heard that he's quite a gentleman. That he's a very, very suave and very sophisticated, very elegant guy. But uh, to, to judge from this book, he has this notion that that for literally a hundred years, China has sort of planned. Uh, this usurpation of of Western power in the world, and it intends to supplant. I guess a hundred years ago, how could you have known it was going to be American? But uh, you know, a hundred years ago, they were, they were thinking of already up supplanting American power in the world. I don't know. I don't know how this works, but right, his through, um, through you know all these discontinuities in 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 governments, somehow this this one idea persisted. Right. And I mean, I don't want to talk, I don't think we should dwell too much on his views because as you can see from the ongoing reports of the Trump transition, like people are coming on and off the team and who knows who will end up staying on it. Uh, But his view, he has a fairly hawkish view of China. He says, what we have to do is we have to listen to the hardline. We have to study and get to know the hardliners in PLA because they're the true face of the PLA. Right. Um, So that's what he's devoted a lot of his time to. I think that's the sort of message that he wants to get to policymakers in Washington. Ed, one of the significant changes that took place during your time reporting in China and something that I observed and participated in was the rise of Twitter. I remember, in fact, the day of the um, uh, Sichuan earthquake uh, in 2008 before the Olympics in the spring. May 12, when I got the news via Twitter before anywhere else, and it spread via Twitter before any of the news agencies had actually had a chance to write even a very brief report. Um, Twitter you also you beca- got the news before you felt the actual tremors in Beijing. I remember feeling tremors in Beijing. I, I, I felt the tremors and then tweeted right away. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, that changed certainly the immediacy of the, the big news uh, organizations, you know, were challenged. But it wasn't only that. Foreign correspondents, of course, use Twitter quite a lot, and it definitely has become a part of any sort of digitally savvy, and that means really any savvy journalist's uh, toolkit nowadays. Do you think the advent of Twitter changed anything about the way that members of the English language foreign press corps reported? Uh, Did it impact you yourself in other ways? Uh, I think it's hard. I mean, it's hard for me to make a judgment of sort of pre-Twitter, after Twitter, because you pointed out 2008 was when you started using it. I came into China in 2000. So I was there during the advent and of Twitter. So I don't know. Uh, my experience on reporting China has always been to have like Twitter, Weibo, Weixin, all of these various technologies available telling me what the news is. I think the way people use Twitter, at least among a lot of China journalists, is that it's an it's a, a type of aggregator. Like people, you're looking at people who study China, who write about China, or think about China. You're looking at what they find interesting, what kinds of links they're sending each other. And this is again, we have to emphasize this. It's a within an English language context because a lot of Chinese who are less familiar with English won't be on Twitter, and it's also blocked by the firewall. So it, you're not getting the full spectrum of sort of. Um, online thinking about China, um, right? I mean, that's actually, I guess, probably not what we're talking about here. We're we're more talking about the kind of meta discussion that's happening among journalists covering China in English on Twitter as as stories are being reported, and you know, talking about one another's stories. Uh, yeah, I haven't. I mean, that I don't think most journalists find that to be that that critical part of reporting in China, sort of like that way you're talking about, Kaiser, um, in terms of like commenting or footnoting uh, various stories. Um, 
I, I guess the reason that I wanted to, to raise that is because one of your colleagues, David, you know, Bar- Barboza, mm-hmm. uh, he, in an interview that I read, talks about this specifically, about the echo chamber effect and how he deliberately stepped away from that and he didn't want it to influence the way that he reported. Right. Did you Do you think that there was anything kind of pernicious about it at all? I don't think there's anything overly... Per- I mean, I use Twitter a lot, as anyone who follows me can tell. And I don't think there... It, I mean... It, I use it because I feel like I need to keep track of, I need to have multiple things telling me what news is happening. David, for example, hasn't, has worked on these long projects where he doesn't um, need to track the news right. or like breaking events as much. So for me, it's an important source of that. And as Jeremy was pointing out, like oftentimes you'll get a hint of something breaking on Twitter before you'll see it elsewhere. Uh, other than like way bar way scene, for example. Um, so I'm using it for that. I think the what you're talking about, the sort of commenting on each other's reporting, then that's not that, at least from my observations in China, it's not a huge part of what uh, journalists do with Twitter. I think in the early days of Twitter, maybe uh, 2009 or so, there was more of that. And I remember doing some of that myself earlier. Um, but I think as people sort of figured out what the best uses for Twitter were. It's been a long time since it came on the scene. I think people have, it's evolved and people's uses of it have right. evolved. One of the other phenomena that you encountered while you were here, which was certainly, I think, maybe faddish, there's a, a while there when reporters sort of replaced the good old Vox Pop, the man on the street interview, with um, that, hey, news assistant, go to Weibo, right. call me some quotes from this guy, and then, you know, running them. What did you, what did you make of, of that and of the passing of that fad? Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, again, it's like one of these things where new technology comes onto the scene, you're grappling with like, what it means, uh, how representative it is of sort of the type of people you want to get the pulse of, whose pulse you want to get. And um, and I think it's one of those things where journalists were trying to figure out to what degree should we rely on this for a gauge of public opinion. And, you know, it's, I don't, I think it, it was a passing fad, as you mentioned, partly because sort of some of the influencers or opinion makers that used to post on Weibo were then sort of slowly pushed out of Weibo for various Or quickly, right, or they left, they, they right. Yeah. So then, I mean, oftentimes, I think you would quote, journalists would be more prone to sort of like uh, see what these influencers were saying on Weibo rather than sort of like what your anonymous uh person right. was saying. I mean, there, there's a big difference. I mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate for us to take a public figure and then the tweets that he's either authorized right. or actually authored and use those. But it's, it's you know, that 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 man on the street that, that this... But know, I mean, Kaiser, th- this is an old sort of, what do you call it, a bugbear of yours. But sure. I have to say, I think that, you know, the ability to sample, you know, tens of thousands of comments is still mathematically superior to being able to ask five people on the actual street. I mean, the only problem with it is that the people online on social media are the people online on social media. And, you know, that is a distinct demographic. But I mean, I, I don't... But sort of like the people in Oriano Mall by Wang Fujing, if you go out to the street or whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, it's a a select, there's group. a bias yeah. in every group that you take and sure, imperfection. Sure. So, Ed, you were one of the reporters writing most forcefully about environmental issues. And it's maybe one of the things that you're going to be best remembered for during your tenure in China, uh, for some of the the most uh, widely read, widely circulated New York Times stories about environmental degradation and about especially air pollution in China. Uh, do you feel like your reporting has had much of an impact? 
I don't think. Well, you know, talk more broadly about you know the whole the whole experience of of, of writing on this stuff. Well, I think uh, I got interested in environmental issues. I've always been interested in the environment, but I got interested in it in particular in the China context because I felt that this was one of those areas where there was an intersection of public opinion, legitimate concern, mass concern by urban sort of urban residents in China, especially in northern China, plus the public policies or what the government was doing um, and propaganda. So it's like a lot of the things that journalists are interested in, in terms of China, this was one where you saw an intersection of all these different things Maybe throw playing civil out. society in that too. Right, civil society. Protest. Um, technology yeah. too, because technology, a lot of absolutely. the awareness, the awareness took place through Weibo at first and then Weixi now. And also the intersection of that with the U.S. government's Twitter account in Beijing, where they were sending out, the air monitor was sending out these hourly air readings and sort of the, how that then like people like Pan Shiryu interacted with that, popularized it among his full, his like million or so followers and then um, raised consciousness. I think that in China, like you end up reporting a lot of things that if you're looking at sort of policy issues or things like that, they can feel a little bit static. But here during my time there, especially from the second half of my tour there, I felt that there was a dynamic thing that was going on in terms of the government interacting with the people on the pollution issue and on and and also the government's sort of approach and rhetoric on climate change like you saw a change in that too am i wrong to say that this was maybe one area that you reported where you injected a lot of personal voice in well i mean i wrote a personal essay that was one of probably one of the most well-read stories that i wrote while i was in china which is about sort of the frustrations of living in a also the frustrations and the guilt of uh, living with a family in uh, a city that you knew was among the most polluted and toxic in the world. Like, uh, not just air pollution, but, you know, there's lots of concerns about water and um, food safety, which, you know, th- those manifested themselves from the first year I was there, but they only became more magnified, I think, among a lot of urban residents in China as the years went on. And I think you and I have talked about sort of like how hard it is to live with the pollution there. And God, I think yeah. anyone... Uh, you it, it'll be you'd be hard pressed to find any sort of like middle class Chinese person or foreigner or someone like who lives in Beijing and is not does not have this on their mind and in their lungs, <laughs> right? Um, Particularly so, in their lungs. Yeah. And I also feel like when a lot of times you're wondering sort of what kinds of feedback loops are happening between you know popular opinion and discontent and the government, I think you you see a bit of that happening here. Was it an outlier though? I mean, it it, it does seem like one of the, the rare stories where you do have prominent public intellectuals. I mean, if you can call Panshi a public intellectual, a public figure, where you know social media had some sort of an impact, where you had you know the ability of of some civil society to coalesce around an issue that wasn't altogether threatening to the CCP. Uh, is this an outlying story, though, or is, it, is are there other? Are, is this sui generis? In other words, uh, it's a good question. I don't. I'm trying to think of what other prominent sort of narratives that came across our radar that while we were there. That yeah, I mean, I always feel like it's it's the one case. That, I mean, whether we're talking about lawsuits, you know, we talked to Rachel Stern from UC Berkeley, and you know, this is it's it's it, it always seems to be like the one issue where I can I can point to it and say, ah, well, their public opinion seems to have some direct effect on policy. Right. But there are also like, I think it's one of these things that can go forwards and also go backwards. Like I was talk, I was at a talk with um, Alex Wong, whom a mutual friend of ours, yes. Greg Kaiser, and he was giving a talk over at UPenn a week or two ago and went down to listen to it. And he was 
pointing out how um, he had these hopes. I remember talking with him about Maybe this we should Beijing. just say who he is. Uh, okay, so. Alex worked for the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council in Beijing, and is now a law professor at uh, UCLA and specializes in environmental law and sort of Chinese law and environmental law. So um, when he was working the NRDC, he was obviously an advocate for sort of like uh, environmental issues in Beijing. And so he said that one of the big things he looked into was sort of whether the government would make um, in its cadre evaluation system, uh, make sort of uh, environmental issues a priority, sort of like people, officials from, you know, central level down to county level. What you're trying to do is you're trying to influence the way county level and that type of local official, like how they behave. It's a a constant thing. Uh, You know, it's a constant issue, constant dynamic, constant tension within the Communist Party. And And what had he found so far? And so what he found was that he thought there was a lot of rhetoric around, oh, making this into a priority. But then, and they sort of said, we're going to judge you on how on perform, like how you perform on this. But then he said recently, he went back and looked at it and he said he hadn't found any cases of any officials being punished uh, Uh. for this. And so then he real, I think, you know, like, and he could express this very, I could, but I think what he found was that that there was a lot of talk about it, that they even said this is a new thing, like this is a new, you'll be judging this. But then in the end, there was never any enforcement of that. That metric wasn't used. It wasn't, there was no punitive punishment around that. So there's no, no teeth to the policy. Uh, it still could could happen one of these right. days. And then, you know, I think the... <laughs> You're a very optimistic person, guys. <laughs> I am, but, I am. But also, like, I want to go see, back there one day. You see that, like, um, back and forth with the documentary Under the Dome, right, which came out a couple years ago, which I... And that was a documentary that was made by a former CCTV on-air reporter along with the producer from there. And so they made a documentary that was a very blunt and very sort of chilling documentary about the effects of air pollution. And she was doing it from very personal perspective, sort of talking about her child and how worried she was about her child growing up in Beijing with the air, levels of air pollution. And she went to some scientific detail. So it was posted online. It was actually endorsed, I think, by the uh, MEP. By, right, right, right. By, and also the website of People's Daily, I yeah, think, might have had linked yeah. to it initially. And it got a huge number of views, like a massive million. amount, very quickly. Then it was taken offline. Censors ordered it to be taken offline within like around four days or so. So, and then Recently, I heard that there's still a lot of tension over that, over what she did, a lot of tension within the system. So I think it's complicated. Like you felt like that there was this opening and, you know, people interpret it in different ways. Some people say it was sanctioned by certain officials and then maybe there was an everyone's okay with it being pulled back because it has sort of gotten the message out without creating, without going viral. Like I think one of the things that we find that the party or a lot of people within senior ranks in the party are afraid of is things going viral. Yeah. I think they, they were watching those download numbers very carefully and it was calibrated. They said, you know, it hits a certain number and we pull it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it was weird. It, it was almost like it hit a nice round number and then it went. Right. And it went from all these sides simultaneously. I was but, really... but without going to detail, I'll say that I know people who have been close to the making of that and they say that there's been a lot of pressure from various agencies that hasn't been publicly reported yet because a lot of people want to keep this off the record, but that it's not that sort of like the narrative of it being having some official cover and then everything being done sort of in a pre-planned manner isn't the it's way false, that it yeah. is Interesting. I'd love to know what really happened there. Ed, aside from your environmental reporting, what would you say was the most interesting story you worked on in your time in China? Besides environmental stories, I've 
found it interesting to go out to sort of the Tibetan and Uyghur areas of China and report a bit on those, um, partly because I feel of my interest in history and the idea of sort of like China as an empire. I think the, we forget that what the Communist Party is doing is it's trying to uh, maintain the contours of what was an imperial system. And the Manchus have pushed what we traditionally think of as China to its maximum boundaries. Like it never, China had never been as large as it was outside of the Manchu rule. And so when the Republicans took over and then later the communists, they're, they're trying to hold on to this like massive imperial territory that has different ethnic groups, different histories, different languages. You know, a quarter of China was there, you know, you can debate like historically where it belonged in the Chinese empire, different parts of um, in different eras, but a quarter of it is not what you would consider like internal China or interior China. I think China lot, proper as the right, phrase like they're the Western regions, right, of what, course, right? And though, if from the perspective of a Han person, they're the Western regions, and so I think that this is still an interesting political dynamic that's going on right now, and you sort of see it in other parts of the world. Sort of India is trying to govern this massive land that was put together by the British Empire, for example. So there are very few countries or modern nation states that are doing this. Um, the Ottoman Empire fell apart or was dismembered, or was taken apart after World War One. So a lot of the large empires that were ruling the world in the 19th century, like they're gone. It's only really now. Russia, India, China. Right. Exactly. And Russia, I would, um, I mean, Russia, the Soviet Union fell apart. So I don't know enough about Russian history in the 19th well, century. Well, I mean, there's but, still, still an awful lot of right, it. Right, it's a lot of land, but Russia. at least the territories at the, well, I know that Russia had started, started to take over Central Asian territories by the 19th well, century. because I mean, there's had still the Dagestan game. and Chechnya, and there's right. still uh, the Soviet Far East, or the former Soviet Far East, right. where there's a lot of other ethnic enclaves. Yeah. So I think for uh, someone who's interested in history, then it's sort of interesting to go out to these regions and sort of see what's going on out there. So so have your ideas about this, the the, the, the notions that you already carried with you when you start, set out to do this reporting, were those challenged in a significant way that you could really share with us? Well, I don't know what notion, I mean, I it'd be hard for me to really pinpoint exactly what ideas I had going out there. I, I already made a lot of trips, for example, out to uh, Tibet, uh, or a couple of trips out to Tibet even before starting this assignment, as well as to Xinjiang. Um, and my father himself had spent some time out in Xinjiang in the 1950s. So I had heard some stories from him like that gave me some historical perspective. But but I would say the regions themselves are very vast. So it's hard to sort of say that there's a central narrative like that plays out. For example, when we say Xinjiang, like we're a lot of times we're talking just about these Uyghur areas in Xinjiang, because that's where a lot, a lot of foreign journalists go. But it's actually like a vast territory. It's one-sixth of China with Kazakhs and, you know, Mongolians and various other ethnic groups. Well, what about the actual reporting? These are not easy places to report. You're a New York Times correspondent. You're already sort of a suspect. They were watching you closely, I, I imagine. When you're going out to the West, like these yeah, Western areas? To these, you know, to, that are More typically described ethics, as restive. Sort of. and, um, the, uh, I think that's Sure. In I think it obviously goes in waves. Like for example, when the self immolations were a big thing that were happening out in Western Sichuan or Kam, whatever you want to call it, they there a lot. Some of those places were locked down. It was much tougher getting to. Now they, I just took a two week trip out to that area um, in Ganza, the Ganza area in, in October, and it was actually we never 
problems with police. We could move around, check. Um, we There were a lot of hotels we didn't check it. We didn't register in or they didn't register us. So a lot of times the police, the way it works in China is police will realize a foreign journalist is in town because the hotel will send a copy of the visa page that says you're a journalist to the local PSB. Hotels are generally told to do this. But if you stay in like a small place, then they might decide not to do that. So a lot of times when you're traveling these places, you want to sort of find ways to avoid doing that's the main like the main way you can in which you can avoid being getting on the radar of local authorities. Are there still stories to come from from your these recent trips? Uh, there will be some stories to come from recent trips, some some more far flung parts of China. Well, we look forward to those. Thanks, Kaiser. One last question from me, Ed, and it's one of the difficult ones for an exit interview subject. Are you planning a book? <laughs> they always... right. That's a pretty standard question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought hard about that. And maybe it's something I will think about more in Princeton. I mean, here, you know, when you're ba- when you're in a community like here in Princeton, then you're I think people are always talking about sort of longer term projects. Okay, so food and friends aside, what are some of the things that you're going to miss the most about Beijing? And we all miss our friends there. We all miss the food. But what are some of the things that are really going to just tug at your heartstrings when you think of it? I mean, I, I lived in Beijing. I lived the first five years I was there. I lived in, uh, you know, in the Dongso area in Beijing and in the last three years in the Beixinqiao area. The whole time I was in the Hutongs. I think that I don't find, outside of what you just mentioned, food and friends, I don't find a lot of things redeeming about uh, the wider <laughs> city, the sort of this metropolis of 20 it's plus unlovely. million. Right. But I love the Hutongs. I love the alleyways. And, you know, you can... You know, you can say, "Oh, I'm a foreigner," exoticizing that. But you know, there is something about. I know Kaiser that you're a person who likes history. And I think there's something about being in a place that feels like it. There's still some history preserved there. And when you're in there, you're going, you're biking past the Drum and Bell Tower, you're biking past the Lama Temple. Like, there's something special about that experience. So that that is a wonderful experience. You're right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ed, it's been great having you on, and thanks so much for taking the time, and I look forward to having you back with us again soon. Stick around with us, make a recommendation, yeah? Thanks. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChinaNews. If you like the Cynical Podcast, and we assume that you do, by all means, just go and leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps, and it means a lot to us. Recommendations, Jeremy. Jeremy Goldcorn, you may begin. Yes. Uh, so I'd like to recommend a book of uh, photography, some of it taken and some of it uh, uh, compiled, curated by Daniel Traub, who's a photographer who used to live in Beijing. It's called Little North Road. And it, uh, the photographs in it uh, are of Africans in Guangzhou, uh, mo- many of them from a particular bridge where there are uh, photographers who will take uh, pictures of passers-by uh, for money. And because it's near the part of town where a lot of Africans live, a lot of their, their customers are people from the African continent. So the book has photos and some essays. And there's also a website which has, has some uh, video content. Um, and we'll put the URL in the notes to this podcast, Little North Road. Cool. That's, that's a great recommendation. Uh, you remember Evan Osnes's piece about so-called Chocolate City from, my gosh, that must have been 
five or six years ago now. I think it was long. It was one of Emmett's first pieces for the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, it was quite good. Ed, you're up. What do you have? Thinking back just quickly through some of my the stories I enjoyed reporting on. I, I mean, one of the uh, a few years ago, I did a series of three stories on sort of culture in China, sort of cult- various people who were doing different things in the cultural sphere, their encounters with uh, censorship or with other sort of um, forces as they were navigating their way. And I did a profile of a, a filmmaker named Zhao Liang. Yeah, we, we came on the podcast to talk about that. It was a great piece. I love that. Yeah. And I'd like to recommend, I think that a lot of people, I mean, his films are very obscure. So I think that I'd like to recommend to people who are interested in China, two documentaries that he did. One is called Crime and Punishment. It's about, uh, set in Northeast China, it's about a police station there and how he interacts with the residents of a small town there. And then the other one is Petition, which is about the culture of petitioners coming to Beijing to try and get their grievances addressed by officials in Beijing. Do you know where we can find these documentaries? I know that um, Degenerate Films, like I think if you look for the website, (laughs) Degenerate Films, Degenerate distributes crime and punishment, at least in the US. And I can't remember if they distribute petition, but they Def- they definitely have at least one or two of his films, so I would check check with them. Excellent. I, I've never actually seen any of his films, but that piece was terrific, and we'll make sure to put a link up to that old piece, too, and to the podcast that we did with you back when we were at Pop-Up back in the day. My recommendation this week is for a piece by Damien Ma of the Paulson Institute. Uh, he's a friend of ours who's been on the show. Uh, it's called Can China's Xi, Xi, Xi Jinping, of course, Can China's Xi Pivot from Disruptor-in-Chief to reformer in chief. It's in World Politics Review. The piece is paywalled, but it's actually worth the hassle of registering and actually, you know, entering your, your, your credit card information and whatnot so that you can get the one free article that they grant you because it's, it's really very, very worthwhile. Personally, I, I think it compares rather favorably to another piece that's, that's out right now, uh, from Jim Fallows actually of the Atlantic about, uh, Xi Jinping and about China and its retrograde policies, the, what I've been calling the new truculence. But, uh, Damien's piece is very, very smart. Um, I, I won't spoil anything here, but do take a look at it. I think it's very worth reading. Ed, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jeremy. Good hearing from both of you again. Welcome back to America, man. Thanks. Yeah, great timing, man. Well done. <laughs> really well done. <laughs> well, you know, Jeremy, like my um, my time in America has, has been bookmarked by nine eleven and then by this election. So yeah. I have to say, like, it hasn't. I haven't had like happy. Stay memories. away, man. It's your <laughs> right. fault. No, you're the guy who was pushing Sam Wong on me and the Princeton election consortium. Right? Have you? You're here in Princeton. You should go God. find him and track him down. And uh, I mean, I'm blaming you, man. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Great to have you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Global China Connection at Princeton University for having me out here to speak and uh, you know giving me the opportunity to hang out again with Ed. Thanks also to Anne LeCheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.